In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're going to talk about value today, and uh, what, talk about food. So we're getting ready. Amy and I celebrate 21 years of marriage next week, and we're going to go out to eat. So we talk about value. So if you're going to go out for a meal, usually one of the more expensive things on the menu would be steak. And then the other option, this is maybe how old school I am, lobster. Did anyone, I, I remember as a kid getting lobster and being a little bit disappointed because I didn't know what to do because you basically have to dip it in butter. And, but things have value and things shift in value. And that's probably one of the more valuable things that we look at if anyone ever goes to Costco for their big fish sale or the seafood. I can't think of what it's called, the seafood uh, show. And you can go and you can get lobsters and they have the claws. You can have them shipped. Actually, I did a little research. You can go to the Yankee Lobster Company and for $10 a pound, you can get lobsters shipped to your house, which is, I thought that was fairly reasonable. But lobsters have not always been super valuable, if you didn't know that. So back in the golden age of the pirates, does anyone know when this is? Like 1600s shifting over to 1700s is like the golden age of the pirates. I only know that because I started reading an article about an island. I just lost the name of it. There's an island where these two brothers have dedicated their entire life to find this treasure, and it seems ludicrous to me. So they're in like the Discovery or the History Channel, and they follow them, and they're trying to go down this long shaft known as the Money Pit, because they figure like Sir Francis Drake or one of these famous pirates has dropped oodles of valuables into this, which doesn't make a ton of sense to me, because if I had a hiding spot for my money, usually I would go and get the money. I mean, that's kind of the point of a hiding spot, but so back then, Lobsters, this is the colonial era when we had people just moving on to the East Coast. Their lobsters were so prevalent that they said they would wash up like two feet deep onto the shores. And in fact, this is what people would eat. So then there was riots in the prison. These are true stories. There's riots in the prison because people did not want to eat more lobster. If you were a slave and sometimes a servant, you could sign in your contract. You would only eat lobster two to three days a week. Because it was so, you're so inundated with this lobster and people are like, I just can't do it anymore. So you could go and get baked beans at that time. You know, Boston's famous baked beans. I've never had them. Has anyone had Boston's baked beans besides the candy? All right, I'm dating myself multiple times today already. So there's a candy called Boston baked beans. They're not that good. But there is a candy. They would pay 50 cents a pound for Boston baked beans. Lobster was 11 cents a pound. So not super valuable. And if you ate it and you didn't want people to know about it, it's the same thing now. So everyone likes McDonald's. No one wants to admit it. But what do you do with your trash? You don't leave it out so people see that you ate at McDonald's. You hide it, right, because you're ashamed that you ate there. The same thing was true then. It was kind of low class. If you take, like, your lobster shells and you leave them outside your house, everyone would be like, oh, I can't believe they're eating lobster, which is what people say all the time now when they go by my house. So why do I, I bring that up? Because uh, values shift and values change and they move around. And so what we're gonna be doing, all the readings that we have for the next three Sundays, just to give you a preview of what's happening. We talked about race and talking about race somewhat exhausted me because I was getting all kinds of emails, text messages, mostly encouraging, uh, but it was a lot of phone calls, a lot of watching shows, a lot of YouTube videos, a lot of watching this, talking to this person, talking to this person and hearing and it, I just wanted to look at the Bible. So that's what we're going to do in the pericope, which is the chosen reading for this summer, is in Matthew. And Matthew, do you know anything about Matthew? At all? You can, you can, there's only six of you here. I shouldn't say that on film, but I mean, the 600 here, but right? The, the, so he was, uh, we just covered it last week. So he was one of the disciples. He mentions it. 
he is one of the disciples that actually wrote one of the gospels. That's not all of them. When we talk about like Luke is not one of the 12 disciples, for example, he's a doctor who wrote a book. So Matthew is one pretty intelligent person. He was a tax collector. And I want you to kind of put yourselves in his shoes a little bit. The main drive on his book, when you read it, it's one of the longer ones, 28 chapters, I believe. One of the main drivers on his book is that he's emphasizing the fact that Jesus is the promised savior and he's fulfilling that. So he's going to make an emphasis here about healing the sick and things like that. That is a throwback to prophecies that talked about the Messiah who was going to come. And these are some of the things the Messiah was going to do. So uh, he quotes the Old Testament more than any of the gospel writers. But he also is one that would have seen his life, I think, change around even more significantly than the other apostles and the other disciples. So the other ones were like fishermen, the other ones were, uh, you know, their brothers, they're doing their thing, working with their dad, and he was a tax collector. No one would have thought much of him, as we explained before, because they ultimately said, if I want to get my taxes, this is how it worked, I want to get $10,000 from you. You don't know that. I just have this mysterious number, and I work for the government, not even the Jewish government, I work for the Roman government, and then I just tell you, I give a shakedown about how much money I want, so I'm going to say, obviously, we're going to, we got to get to 10,000, so I'm going to say, you owe me five, you owe me five, and you owe me five, and so you pay this up, you begrudgingly know that I obviously only need 10, so I just pocket all the rest, so the tax collectors were very, very wealthy, but everyone hated them, and so now, that was just the, the same chapter we're in, the calling of Matthew, and what happens when he is called, he invites all his friends over, and Jesus goes to his house, and, and the, the Pharisees are looking, they're like, what is going on as he is called? And he shows up, and there's prostitutes there, there's these other, quote, sinners there, the people that no one looked at very highly, but who is there? Jesus is there, right? So it's, it's kind of an amazing thing as we go. So we're going to look at a couple things, just value, and I want to just talk about how different it is. Oh, I did have some pictures of lobsters, there we go. I only showed this one because lobsters taste really good until you think about where they get all their sustenance from. So that's the bottom of the ocean. We'll just move on. Uh, some value things. Uh, we often just think of what we value, right? And this changes over time. When you're a kid, like maybe you valued baseball cards or maybe you valued sports or you valued um, your speed or something like that. This changes over time. But we value like wealth, your home, comfort, security, fame, that's not so much, but reputation. So I only brought these up because immediately you can see how opposite this is in the life of Jesus. And I think this is what have made him stand out significantly when you talk about what, what do you value. I value the money I make. I, I mean, as a human being, you value that. Jesus really had no money. And as he functions on the earth, he doesn't have like, he had a money person, Judas, who stole money. But home, he never had a place to lay his head. And you just think about how important your home improvement projects are or how important it is to make sure your lawn is nice or how nice it is to go home and feel like this feels like home. I mean, that's, that's a big deal. And I would say that's a big deal to me. But to Jesus, he didn't even have this. So like all these natural things that we think are a big deal. Comfort and security, that's just going home and being able to relax or the security of knowing you've got enough money or saving enough money so that someday you can retire. That's, there's something to that, I think. I don't know too many people I know when they say, are you going to retire? They're like, I don't know. Uh, most people I know, or at least this is on their mind, they either feel good about themselves because they feel like they're on track or they feel terrible because they haven't saved enough. I mean, that's just how it works. You're usually in one of two categories. The fame, and for us, I don't think that's most of us, but reputation's a big deal. In 
that one is significant, I think, because a reputation is a big deal. That's ultimately what other people think of you. And we would say your reputation is very valuable. God even has a command about it, right? We're not supposed to talk and lie about people. But when you think about Jesus, how does he function? We just gave an example. He goes to Matthew's house, and he doesn't care what these other people think because he says, I care about people. And that's what we're going to find out as we go through this. We're going to be talking about values kind of for three weeks in a row. Not very distinctly, but you're going to see just a little bit of a nuance, different ways as the Bible talks about it. So when we jump into it, uh, Jesus went through all the towns. So Matthew is now saying, here's kind of how Jesus functioned. He went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. We'll just pause right there. If th- would this be your game plan if you were, like, trying to get your message out? I think this is like the reverse 80s hairband. So if you ever listened to in the 80s music, you guys obviously did. Uh, so the 80s music, they, they'd start out and they'd play huge stadiums. This is kind of how it works. And then it gets a little bit smaller, smaller. And has anyone gone to the state fair and seen anybody play that you've heard of? You're like, how about that? And then it goes to like the county fair. Like this is as low as it gets. I may have seen Kansas, the band, in Watertown, Wisconsin. Like this is not the highlight of all the universe right here, or you're the Little River Band, and you end up playing Castle Rock, Colorado. This is what happens. This is kind of, Jesus is doing it in reverse. You'd think he would go to Jerusalem, and he would hang out by the temple, and then he would just shoot his message again and again and again. That's not how it works. He went from town to town to town to town, because why? That's where the people were, and that's his, this is his, his mode, and this is how he functions. So he goes where all the people are. He's healing every disease and sickness, which is, again, there's prophecies about that. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So there's three things I want to point out here. Uh, Scullo is the word that we have here. It has the idea, and it's kind of a graphic word, but it has the idea of being like whipped or flayed or like scratched. It's not a pleasant word, but this is the word that they're using here. When Jesus looked at the people, the people were troubled we would say that like when his eyes this is what jesus sees he sees the people and he sees troubled people and he sees troubled people without any kind of leadership and so the people are struggling he looks at them with his eyes and he sees that they're kind of wandering they they should have a shepherd and at that time they did have leaders so they would have had leaders they would have religious leaders but what do you know about the religious leaders at the time so, like, just put yourself back in time a little bit. What would it have like been like to be one of the people who lived as a Jewish person then? If you listen the, to the nuanced part of Jesus' message, you get a sense of what it would have been like, and you get this sense that there was kind of this burden and there was this weight on all the people's shoulder because there was the people who determined what was how you should do it, like the Talmud is two thousand page long. That's like the rabbis telling them how they should live. And they even had it, like, determine how many steps you could take on the Sabbath day. They had, like, all this to the, like, the very nuanced point. So that as this layperson who's just trying to function, there would have just been this weight on your shoulder, which makes some sense when you hear how Jesus talks. He says, my, you know, take my yoke upon you. And how does he say that? My yoke is light. I take the burden from you and I put it on me. And there's this sense of relief that would have happened. And on top of like this, this weight, right? The, the, they just kept adding laws and laws and laws, and Jesus is saying, I've come to fulfill those laws. I've come to make this right. The other word that I think is worth noting 
is he had compassion on them. You've probably heard pastors talk about this. It's kind of one of the graphic in a good way kind of words. And so uh, let's just talk about feelings for a second. And we, we've talked about Brene Brown and we've talked about empathy and we've talked about uh, the difference between empathy and I just lost the other word, empathy and um, What's the one that starts like an S? Sympathy. There we go. So sympathy, this is how they describe it or how she describes it. Sympathy is just saying like, oh, I feel, I feel for you. That's really, that's really rough. And then you move on with your day. Empathy is like you feel it. And the, if you talk about youth, they use similar terms like that. Like, do you feel me here? Like, what are you trying to say? Do you, f- you sense, do you, are you with me on this, what's happening here? Or if you've worked with someone and something really bad has happened to them, where do you feel it? Like, we usually use the term, my heart goes out to you. But I don't think that quite, that's not quite what we're getting here. So compassion has that same idea. Like, we use the phrase, my heart goes out to you. We don't say, like, my mind, we say our thoughts are with you. I don't know. Like, if I was dying of cancer and someone says, my thoughts are with you, like, who cares? Right? Like, okay, but if they say, my heart goes out, you're like, ooh, Okay. How would you feel, though, if someone came and you said, well, I found out I had cancer, and they, they're just like, oh, I feel sick to my stomach when I think about how you, I just feel, I feel like in my gut, I feel for you. And this is really the term that it's talking about. Splankna, the word, when it's used in different contexts, is actually talking about your inner parts. So when they would do sacrifices, they're talking about like your organs, they're talking about the heart, the liver. And they, they really talk about, like, kidneys is often how it talks about in the Old Testament. But I think that helps you understand when that compassion end of it. There's levels to it. You could say, again, our th- what if Jesus said he, he saw them, they were harassed and helpless, and he, his thoughts went with them. I think maybe the next is, like, write a note. Uh, his heart went out to him. Even that, a- again, what was deeper he actually felt? Like, and I think you've been in a situation like that where your heart and your mind and your body, you almost physically feels for someone. Usually it happens with like a story when they're telling you like someone got injured and you get like the willies. So this is not like watching Jerry the day and you know the person's fine and it's funny. This is like when someone's describing an injury they had and you're like, oh, that's not good. And I think it's the same kind of compassion you'd have if some of you have like adopted dogs that's something like that. You go through the thing and you, you put yourself in their shoes and you think, man, this is a terrible situation. I, I want to help them here. This is how Jesus is feeling when he sees this people. But the problem that he has is that it's only him. And he wants more people to know like the message that he has that can give comfort. So I want to talk one more thing on this. There's another phrase. We get our value, word for value out of Latin, uh, valeria, which is like... Um, to value something, but we also get it, there's another word, specto, you could kind of guess what that means in Latin, this is not, some of you are Harry Potter people, so you're picturing like spectum, patronus, right, this is, so, so spectacles, we have that, spectator sports, uh, this all comes from the same thing to see, and that's another term for value in Latin, and I think it's an important thing, because that's how we kind of function, when you look at something, if you really value it, it's the way you look at it. So think of those terms. So Jesus sees them, and the Bible even talks in a similar way. It's what your eye sees when you value this person. So here's an example in the Psalms. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. So that's the idea of protection, but what is it saying? Like you're that spark that when, when 
when God looks at you, God is saying, you're saying, this is the psalmist saying, I want you, when you look at me, to find joy. This is what I want to feel when you look at me. And there's not enough people, right? So we can value things the way we look at them. And I wonder how awesome we do. Uh, you just think about the last three, three weeks when we we're talking about racism. And how do we value people usually? We do, it's, it's kind of the way we look at them. And I'm not just talking about race, but usually the way that you value people is kind of what you get in return. And it's kind of a market kind of value. You, you say, well, what am I going to get from this? And you, maybe your boss, you're nice to your boss. Why are you nice to your boss? Because your boss writes your checks. Your boss determines if you get a raise. Your boss determines if you have a job, right? This is important. And so this is the way you look at people. You look at maybe people that are a little bit more valuable. And this is where we're talking about nuance, how we look at people. doesn't matter how much someone makes. You could say no, but my guess is most of your friends are in the same realm of your socioeconomic class. This is my guess. Yeah, that's how it works. Why? Because we value this. And I'm guessing you, you don't have too many friends that like have a car that's extremely way nicer than your car or extremely way worse than your car. And when we talk about bias, I've said this before, I don't think it's race anymore. We've gotten to a point where when we're talking about biases and the way that people look at people, they'd say, you know, it doesn't matter. I have friends of multiple ethnicities. It doesn't really matter. But what people make is a big deal to a lot of people. And I think a lot of people don't hang out with people that don't make very much. So where do we get to this? That's not how God sees things. When... You stand before God, and I think that's somewhat remarkable, that it really doesn't matter, like we've been talking about for weeks, what you look like, but it also doesn't matter what you make. It also doesn't matter if you're smart. It doesn't matter if what kind of job you have. He doesn't, like, sit down and go, hey, what do you do for a living? God, that doesn't matter to God. God sees intrinsic value in each of you, and our calling as a Christian, when we go out and we see people, is this way, see people the way that God sees people, which is saying you have intrinsic value to me. You're incalculably valuable. That's how God sees people, and this is what God has called us to do. So now he's got his disciples around him, and he, his heart is going out, and he wants to know, and he talks a little bit. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, seeing there's so many people that don't know where their value is. There's so many people that are beat up by the leaders they have. There's so many people who don't have this peace or this joy or the rest that we have through him as a savior. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And you just picture the disciples right there going like, it's a good idea, Jesus. Let's say a prayer right now. Dear Lord, please send some more people. Jesus called the 12 to him and gave them authority to drive out. They're like, wait, what, what, what's happening right now? So they said, hey, we got to do, have to send some more people out. And he starts bringing them around. He said, this is what I want you to do. Go drive out on pure spirits. Heal every sickness and disease. And you can imagine the guys going like, all right, this is going to be good. These are the tw names of the 12 apostles. Simon, who's called Peter, fisherman. His brother Andrew, also fisherman. James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Do you know what their nickname was? the sons of thunder. And why are they called the sons of thunder? Because some one village rejected Jesus and he asked if they could, <laughs> if they could send down fire and brimstone on the town. So they're a little intense. I mean, these are the guys you don't want to play in card games. They said games, uh, Dimitri Martin says something very similar when you play board games, is the, the object of every board game is to figure out which one of your friends is a jerk. And 
Uh, these are the names, so he gets all the way through, James and John, the sons of thunder, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, the doubter, Matthew, and I don't know why he keeps that name to himself, but Matthew, the tax collector, this is only one chapter in, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, who is, uh, what they mean by zealot is they wanted to overthrow the Roman government, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, when you look at that list, does this seem like the who's who? Like if you were going to take over the world? I think there's two observations we should make. Number one, Jesus has never read Strength Finders 2.0. Like, I don't know if this is the ideal team here that we're talking about. And he's probably never read Jim Collins' Good to Great and Getting the Right People on the Bus. Because if I was going to assemble the greatest team of all time to take over the planet with my message of salvation, he picked a bunch of fishermen and a tax collector no one liked, the zealot who probably only, I mean, if you got a nickname zealot, that means you talk about this all the time. So this is the person when you talk to them, they're always talking about the government. It's like the guy in Parks and Rec or something like that. This is that guy. So like it's all these people and the guy who steals money. This is not the ideal setup. Why does this matter? Because as Jesus gets ready to send people out, I think it's nice to know that it doesn't matter if you're blue collar. It doesn't matter if you're super smart. These, some say these guys were teenagers. Jesus says, I just need people, and I need you to share this essential message because the harvest is plentiful. There are so many people that have no idea where their value sits. There are so many people that are trying to find it in all kinds of different places, and Jesus says, here is the one place you can do it. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those that have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely you give, or freely give. That last point that I just want to talk about is kind of comes back to lobster, and it kind of comes down to what we're talking about with value. To value something means you put it as a higher priority to other things. And it's not really tricky, I think, to get much of any of these things. I don't think it's super difficult. But value is not only, so we're talking about value. So value is what you see in something, right? And that was pretty important. We're saying as human beings, when we look at other people, it's important that we see them as God sees them, that they have intrinsic value. How else do you determine value, really? How do you determine value? I think value is determined by what you're willing to give up for it. If you want to be really wealthy, you've got to give stuff up. You've got to give up probably a family relationship. Then most of the time, these don't always go well together. You've got to give up maybe morals. Uh, maybe you've got to give up uh, friends. Because you say, one tra it's not that hard to be rich, I don't think. But you've got to give something up. If you want to just say, I want to have the greatest family life ever, you've got to give something up. That means you're probably not going to have the greatest corporate job in the whole planet. You've got to give something up. If you want to be the fittest person on your block, it's not that hard. But you've got to give something up. They talk about that with training, big training. They're talking about Ironmans and stuff like that. And the amount of time that goes into these, they said... Um, you can be a good employee, you could do good at your job, do well at your job, 
You can do <laughs> poor at your grammar. You can do well at your job, but poor at your grammar. You can do, uh, be a great family man, or you can be an iron man. You can pick two out of three. Be, what is it determining? If someone wants to do that, they're saying, I want to give something up. If you want to have a great reputation, you got to give something up. If you want to be famous, you got to give something up. If you want to have the greatest, nicest home ever, you got to give something up. Why does this all matter? Because obviously when Jesus looks at you as human beings, he doesn't just say, you know what, my thoughts go with you as you're cruising down to hell. He doesn't say, like, my heart, I feel you. Like, not only is he consumed by this, this compassion, down to, like, his gut, he feels this, but he says, I'm willing to give up anything to have this kind of relationship. I'm willing to do anything. And obviously he does. He goes to a cross he suffers, he dies, he takes our sins on as he faces a real place in hell. And he rises again, and then he comes to you and he says, the harvest is plenty full, but I need people. I need people like you that can look at someone because you have been freely given. I gave you this. I need people that can look at human beings that are all around there and just see that they're lost and they're hurting and, it, and that they're, they're, they feel for them enough that they say, I'm willing to give something up. I'm willing to give up money to build relationships so I can talk to people. I'm willing to give up my security, right? It does not feel good to go talk to someone about your faith, I don't think. I'm the pastor, and it's awkward, right? I got good relationships with my neighbors. I kind of like that. I like that they like me, and I like them. I like that they never think, like, oh, he's not too pushy. You got to give something up. You have to give, you got to take a risk to step out and talk to people. And maybe they look at you and think you're a Bible banger. Maybe they think you're weird. And what we're going to look at these next couple weeks is when you value, truly value what God sees, and when you see things the way God sees them, you're willing to give up things so that other people can experience it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you came and you took all our sins away. And sometimes we value that, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we think there's other things in this world that we'd rather have, but instead you gave us a true peace. You're not loading on us laws and laws and laws and telling us that we have to do this and do that to win your favor. Instead, you came and you fulfilled it. You took this away, you make us white as snow, and you give us a job to do. It's a job we don't always want, and with reluctance we go outside these doors but you put us in specific times and specific places to meet specific people, and you give us an opportunity to step out in faith. And what does it mean to step out in faith? It means we're willing to give things up because we see things the same way you see things. We see souls, and we don't see anything else. We ask this in your name. Amen.